Hello and welcome back to the Handstand Cast with me, Emmett Lewis, my glorious co-host Mikael Christiansen, and potentially a surprise. Take it away, Mikael. Yes, so today we have with us um, uh, Alex Pawlotsky, who is a PhD in neuroanthropology, of all things. Um, and uh, yeah, the reason we have him here is because I have actually been doing a series of courses in anthropology with him uh, for the last a couple of months um, and he's running a few different courses he has been doing a reasonable amount or quite a lot of research haven't you within uh, parkour movement practices anthropology a lot of these things so yeah introduce yourself uh hi everybody uh my name is alex petlowski and i'm an anthropologist um i'm hyped to be here and and first of all awesome soundtrack that was like a combination of a video game and a like a stomping form when I was thinking hand sounds, <laughs> I didn't quite expect like a giant <laughs> mechanical beast. Yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, I, I, I'm, I'm a neuroanthropologist. I started off as a, as a graphic artist and illustrator, went, did some work on parkour. Uh, in, that was my PhD. Um, became really interested in movement cultures. Got really interested in the idea of uh, conflict and masculinity, because guess what? There's a lot of men in movement cultures. Sometimes <laughs> they get into conflict and then, and then met a whole bunch of really interesting messed up people in across different lines mm -hmm. and, and worked with trauma, particularly in relation to war zones and pushed me into a neuroanthropology where I spent a lot more time looking at the clinical conceptions of movement. Mm, uh, wow. And yeah. So now, now that universities are being mean to all of us anthropologists, at least here in Australia, I thought I'd just take off on my own and do a bunch of course teaching. And this is how I met Mikkel, which is, which is great. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. It's kind of cool that we have a real anthropologist and not someone who just LARPs as one. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, love, I love the term LARPing. LARPing explains so much of internet presentation. It's a great thing to yeah. do. Yeah. It's like, I've realized recently, like, just because, you know, we have memes on the internet which are in any graphical format, but I've also realized we just have memes in terms of phrasing. I've spotted this this morning. I was reading something about ayahuasca and it's on Reddit. And it's basically people were like going to this. Let me describe it up, sums it up in a YouTube comment. I had, I've never eaten a brownie, but I've heard from other people who've heard off other people who have eaten brownies that chocolate brownies with frosting is the best type of brownie. So talk about ayahuasca and all this, but it's out of context for this, but it's kind of <laughs> sums up the internet a lot. I suppose it's just reposting at this stage. But uh, yeah, yeah. so this is kind of going to be quite a broad cast today where we're going to, me and Mikael will probably provide some context for handstand culture and all these kind of things. And Alex will tell us where we're wrong and what's actually going on and all the academic side of things. <laughs> so yeah, well, yeah. I, I can tell you this though, uh, I'm going to be wrong for anything except for the cultural and the historical interpretation because yeah. fuck it like anybody who's an academic who's jerking off and, and writing papers about uh what culture is now is always recording history so <laughs> that's the thing much respect to the people who practice because the people who practice are closer to the visceral experience and that's what matters brains and bodies yeah dude you guys know know it best and then then you delude yourself and hopefully we can pull you back from there <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But like, uh, I'd like to just hear a little bit more of, um, because I mean, to me in general, when it comes to, I mean, since I, I did, I like for those of you listening that don't know, I did like a very small bachelor's degree in anthropology. And that's been one thing that has kept me interested in 
like handstands and all of these other things too, because you can look at kind of like what are the kind of the uh, common denominators between these various physical practices and how does it influence us as people and so on. And <clears throat> like uh, <clears throat> one, one question that I'd like to ask you, Alex, is just like in, in terms of parkour or like um, when looking at, at uh, yeah, movement-based art forms or training forms or like these yeah physical practices in general like are there like primary kind of common grounds that you can see within them in within those like cross-culturally and so because i mean i am only have like a real frame of reference for this within kind of western culture um yeah and i guess there's just so much in this this field but yeah I'd like to hear some thoughts so, so there's one horse that I really like to whip to the point when it's died a long time ago for anybody who knows me, but I, I think is an important point. Um, the accident uh, of, of Judeo-Christian cultures yeah. um, taking over and being able to regulate narratives about the body is about the most weird, fucked up thing, anthropologically speaking, that you can imagine. Uh, and, and the big thing about that would be to say almost everywhere that is not Judeo-Christian that yeah. isn't committed to a simple conception of a soul and, and souls are so important because souls are, we all know you, if anybody has ever heard of a dude named Jesus if, or, or, you know, if, if you didn't, if you were Jewish and you didn't want to like the dude named Jesus, there's the story that is a soul and a body and the body is polluted and fucked up and dirty. That's the place where the temptations live and the soul is the true you. And so to me, so many of the conversations that we can have um, really need to put this into consideration, like whether or not your conception of the body is Judeo-Christian or non, before colonization, um, most of us didn't have an antagonistic relationship with the body. Most of us didn't have to divide the conception of purity of movement into uh, these forms that are supposed to be academic in style. Yeah. Um, so I think that that's a really important place to start that we, when we talk about the body quite often, especially anybody who's English speaking within, within Western Europe or across the colonies, have a completely different understanding of embodiment from China, India, um, Japan today, but especially anywhere broad spread anthropologically. So yeah, I, I, that would be the big thing that I would offer in relationship to that. Um, I think that our definition of the body is quite antagonistic. We are distrustful of the physical so much of the time in a way that doesn't make sense like it medically doesn't make sense anymore as somebody who then gets to do clinical work the neurology of it is that if we neglect our bodies we get unwell we we start to get all kinds of problems with ourselves yeah um and i don't mean yeah i don't mean that in in the sort of weird magical way i mean it literally like obesity um depression uh disconnection yeah. in terms of broader ecological systems yeah so yeah that's the thing that i would like to put down yeah it's definitely kind of one of these things that say where i'm from ireland there's a big focus on mental health activism because the government support is just terrible for it and there's just this kind of thing mm. that i from my understanding the way i would view it is like we have this organ the brain that exists in the body and the nervous system mm. and it gets issues because of the environment and the feedback it gets from us and no one seems to re everyone just kind of blames it on the mind oh you're depressed because of your mind you have anxiety because of your mind it's like well you know this organ and this kind of sensory thing can just get sick just like a heart just like a set of lungs and we have hospitals for hearts and hospitals for lungs and specialists for this and 
you know, you have heart disease, you can go get all these kind of things and treatments quite easy. Whereas to get like the treatment your mind might need, which might be counseling or might be medication or might be a combination of therapies, it's very right. difficult to get over here because it's still this kind of focus of like, there's just something wrong with your mind and you're doing wrong think. And it's just the mm -hmm. separation of the mind from the body is almost fueling a lot of this. Whereas, you know, the activism and the people who are kind of a bit younger who are trying to push this, obviously kind of recognize this to a certain degree. I see there's a big upsurge in this kind of whole, you know, I don't want to go back to healthy mind and a healthy body, but there's a lot to it. Yeah. Yeah, like it, it's yeah. also fascinating. Like, I mean, a little bit on the kind of the side of, of that, but like you mentioned kind of the, the kind of the proper and improper body in a sense like the um, like the uh, the pure and the impure and i mean relating that back to kind of physical practices and so on as well is very like i mean just from very basic things like i remember like you, you're taught as a child like yeah but sit up straight in the chair like don't sit there and slouch uh and like you have to walk properly like like i mean just basic things like i mean when you're in kindergarten and all the kids walk in a line holding hands i mean th there it kind of makes sense because when you are four you might not understand what traffic is but still like how the various rule sets are kind of programmed into us and uh like a lot of the things that we've like, I mean, for all the listeners, you've heard me and Emmett banging on about like how there isn't necessarily a right and a wrong form and so on for like training your handstand. And this this relates to that directly because, I mean, wh why is it so improper than us having created some sort of conception of... And one thing that I thought about quite a lot um, that I'd like to hear your opinion on, uh, Alex, is like this this idea of the body as a straight um because it's like it's it feels as if just to, to take a very simplified image that like I am a human, then I see that if if I stack bricks in a very straight line on top of each other, it works out very well, and that must mean that if everything is straight and looks straight, it must be it must be proper and it must be correct. Therefore, I must stand up straight because it it, it makes sense. While a body can slouch, a body can do all these various actions. And the funny thing is that the people that force themselves to sit straight are usually the ones that are already in pain. I mean, right <laughs> now I'm sitting and slouching. I'm going to like move around and do all kinds of various postures as I sit here doing this podcast. And none of them are going to hurt my body, but none of them are straight. And how this kind of concept has kind of been built into us kind of on hardwired. And then when we look at a handstand, we're like, hmm. You are not straight. It must mean that you are getting injured. And then you look back in back in history, like it's funny also, me and Emmett, we keep keep mentioning this that like in the old books, they always talk about the aesthetic curving of the back in the handstand, because everyone was standing with like that like very round and very like low shoulder position and everything. And nowadays, like if you do that, they're just like, oh my God, you must you must injured yourself if you do that. <laughs> um yeah, look, so so the thing that I really want to, I, I want to present this in a way that doesn't get all the idiots on the internet to think that I'm talking about brainwashing and state control, because there are two things that human beings are supposed to do. We're supposed to be able to function as individual beings, but we're also supposed to be able to function in a society. And, and here is the big anthropological worldview. Um, there is no fucking individual. We wouldn't exist if we were just individuals. The definitions of human beings is about communication. And the most flexible component that we have is, is the brain. 
because the brain is the bit that gets uh, our interpretation of the world and the bit that defines how we see the world is, 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 is cognitively developed. So the conception of standing up straight, um, talking about that, why is the question that we have to ask? Why is it that standing up straight in a particular way or following a particular postural position is important? And I mean, there's a really clear history that connects that to two things. Um, in the simplest historical terms, the idea of fitting in within mostly military processes. So we want our military to behave in an intimidating way. And so good posture is really important, very heavily connected to physical embodiment, militaries and physical embodiments. Yeah. Long history. Um, and then the second component to that is uh, the conception of, well, what does that mean when we internalize it ourselves? What is good citizenship? What is good postural value in that particular sense? And, and while I'm saying this, all of the libertarians are going nuts and going, yeah, I knew it. I knew it. The anthropologists are backing me up. <laughs> but simultaneously, you're wrong because it's essential. Like this is how we build society. Human communication is physical. And so why don't we want to slouch? Well, every text that I've read that has had an issue with slouching is because the person who is slouching is counterdicting a lot of the socially required group ideals that are there. I mean, we can talk about Jordan Peterson in relation to this right now. Don't slouch because you look like a loser and losers don't make it in society. Within <laughs> military texts from as far back as like the 1300s, the slouching soldier is a tired soldier that suggests weakness for the entire group. And what is a slouch? Well, a slouch is mental exhaustion. It's as much mental as it is physical. It's just somebody going, I'm tired and I want to give it up. Um, but it's also somebody in a weird way and in a fun way exerting their notion of physical capacity. Like you can slouch in a handstand, which itself is really interesting because what we're doing then is developing and demonstrating incredible amounts of physical skill, but then bringing in a wonderful thing called artistic interpretation or physical self-presentation, um, like a slouchy handstand. Like I, I'm almost imagining, and you guys know this better, and I actually don't know what I'm talking about now. So this is a pure no, no. hypothetical. Go for it. Has there ever been a case of somebody doing a sad handstand in a performance sense and everybody gets a visceral sense of that uh i can definitely think of some clown acts of like the stereotypical the august clown so there's different types of clown but an august clown would be very close to what we think of a clown white face red nose but kind of it has that hint of nobility to it but at the same time it's kind of sad it kind of has a sadness to it and i have seen mm. clowns that have managed to convey their sense of sadness and maintain their kind of character presence of sadness through kind of acrobatics, pratfalls, handstands, you know, the whole kind of act. Now, maybe the hand balance wasn't the full main course of the act, clowning was, but it was displayed yeah. across it. I have actually seen uh, that because, like, yeah, you, you, you might not know about this, Alex, but, uh, like, I am uh, in the process of creating a show with, six other or like with five other hand balancers like everyone's basically an expert at standing upside down and we decided to tr try to kind of really dig into that subject matter and create like a full performance around it and one of the girls uh girl named imogen from the uk uh, she's incredibly expressive in just the way she moves in handstand and she even has a video i can i can link that to you later called mm -hmm. dying handstands which is basically her like i mean like she and the cool thing is she she she's she's rather tiny and petite she's like 
quite thin. And she does this like insane one arm handstands and then kind of like her arm just like kind of crumbles, a leg kind of comes comes down and it looks mm -hmm. kind of like a, a sped up decomposition. And uh, that really kind of gives off such a vibe because like you, and, and that's one thing that is cool with, with that type of, uh, of movement. And even like, I mean, in a lot of dance and so on, like just the fact that if you relax, you are going to fall. And mm. that in itself, like it carries a lot of meaning. The fact that like, okay, I am actually like visually demonstrating that I like, I pretend at least to cannot hold myself up anymore. Um, yeah. So. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and so all of that just broadly to me connects between this basic tension that plays out across society all the time that anthropologists and sociologists are really interested in, which is what bit of you is important to be able to communicate broader to society, broad meaning, sort of the structural stuff, and what bit of you is self-expression and agency. And, and I think that handstands are interesting because I think that handstands, like parkour in some ways, uh, but again, I don't want to prescribe what I know no, to, no, to this discipline. Um, might have a component to them that is very sportified aesthetic judged yeah. on the basis of its purity yeah. and, and score oriented versus a, a presentation of self like an artistic expression yeah um, that might be performative but i don't think that takes away from it um, yeah you're kind of yeah. touching on something i actually wanted to get onto so we might as well start on that so for myself i like to describe a lot of things in my own internal world of describing them as in kind of mythopoetic senses because it helps make sense for me so I have codified that we have two strands of kind of physical development in kind of Western culture and probably plays out around the world. We have what I would term the solar logos one, which is basically things you can measure and things that work in straight line. There is sports, obviously, which we know is like running fast. I ran faster in a straight line over a certain distance and it's measured. It also cues in that it uses a lot of basically rotational and hip driven power. And you have this idea that there's something to overcome. Then we have this kind of, it's not a forgotten strand, but it's not called a strand of physical development, or it is now, but maybe not in the past, where we have this kind of expressive strand, what almost contains a same degree of physical development and training required to do it. But at the same time, so I would term this the Orphic strand, just for my own mythopoetics here. And <laughs> it's kind of to do with things we associate with feminine values and sensuous and curved lines and performance that performance because like let's face it we're doing a sport we're doing a performance we're performing an activity in a field and there might be spectators and other stuff and there's kind of a value judged on this but then we have the other ones where like we do a performance and there's no there's no winner at the end of your theater show or your dance show but you have conveyed something and it has a physicality to it and at the same time, it comes out of like, if it's too linear, it becomes too robotic. So it has to have this kind of embodied expression in it to convey. So the body becomes, instead of a vessel for measuring things and measuring outcomes, it becomes a way of conveying something. So yeah, that's kind of, yeah, I just wonder if you have any thoughts on that or these kind of oh, things. I, I just as a, as a general note, I love... I love the feminine to masculine definition because it's really important and it connects with historical conceptions of value. Oh. Um, and, and, and it sucks that we now think that expressing yourself is a feminine thing. <laughs> I think that's absurd. I think that that's a way that men rob themselves of their opportunity to express themselves and have a decent relationship with their bodies. 
because the reality is the history of uh, industrialization, the history yeah. of building cities is about men becoming utilitarian and women becoming artistic. And that's a, it's a stupid narrative because it doesn't apply, uh, but has been told to us so often that we, we make those associations automatically. Uh, just in case you didn't know, as a neuroanthropologist, I will put my PhD down in a hat, sir, to challenge a lot of the evolutionary psychology bullshit about the necessary divisions of labor that are there, because cross-culturally they don't hold up. But secondarily, um, I, I look, I love the idea. I love it. I love it for a bunch of reasons. Prime amongst them would be the fact that that's literally the way that we divide things. Um, and, 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 and in order to expand on this, and I don't want to make assumptions, um, how comfortable are we with the idea of art as a handstand versus how comfortable are we with the idea of sport as a handstand and which one has more value? And that's a question that I want to ask you guys to be able to answer or speak about this because this seems to be such a tension. The idea of art as being something that we pay to see, therefore it has to be performative. But as far as I'm concerned, I'm, and, and I'm an illustrator, I'm a graphic artist, some of the best art happens privately. Yeah, It can only be performative at its showing. So we have this, this idea of art and this idea of, of performance and they don't necessarily mesh. And for most people in circus, and these are the few friends that I have that I've had conversations with, uh, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it's almost an element of devaluing of the art that it's performative to be treated like a clown or an acrobat as opposed to being treated like an artist. And then simultaneously what you have is the Gutzmouthian gymnastic conception of a handstand, which is something that you do to be in good shape. You're ready to be in the military, you're ready to swim 100, <laughs> 100 meters you know all of that kind of stuff so what do you guys think about it what's the and, and this is me i don't know whether or not you've had these discussions i think yeah. that's an, i think it's an extremely interesting question really like or like just the framing of that because the first thing it makes me think about is that like it will depend a lot on what circle um or like what people you're asking about that question mm. to and like, because like, if you look in the circus context of things, it's like, like what you usually do is that you build up a certain level of skill. And then from there on, you use that skill to transform it and create something else. Like, mm -hmm. um, so there is kind of this tension within what is done there, because in, in the one sense, you, you want to display the skill and the ability, but you want to also be free from it. And like, there's this discussion almost in, in the question about like, yeah, but are you trying to like, is the goal to devalue the skill and like, just let the skill be there as some sort of, of, uh, of canvas for whatever else you're doing uh, yeah. or, or should also just the ability of you doing it and like the spectacle also kind of carry value. And I mean, in general, like there is like, there is a dialectic between that in, in the performers in general, while uh, in the circus circles and kind of I think the more artistically uh, I, I wouldn't say developed but like the more deeply focused people are on kind of the art artistic aspects I guess the more value that would have whereas you also have the completely other side such as like uh, for example there is this um, 
uh, classical divide in in circus, which is like the you have the kind of the European. Uh, to, to, now I'm going to make extremely broad categories here, but like yeah. the European slash Canadian circus has traditionally over the last like 40 years or so like kind of developed the contemporary circus over time there's lots of young people that have come into it like they're not from circus families they do the different mm. circus schools it's been fused a lot with theater with dance like a lot of basically the the uh, a lot of the literature that's used in the programs are basically from dance and from from theater so it's kind of been infused for good and for bad with all these other disciplines but if you go uh, eastwards and you go Ukraine, Russia and China and so mm. on it's like as you say like I mean the classical look at look at the, the the military look of the Chinese circus where you have like you basically have eight people who are the best in the world at doing handstands bar none and they all do the exact same routine at the same time like it's these types of performances that you very often see there little like, individual expression like grandiose spectacle uh, and you also in in kind of the in the the Russian Ukrainian circles there is like I mean again very much of a uh, of a large sweep here there's loads of individuals within this of course but they're like yeah. it's like for, like I have a friend of mine who like several friends who were in Kiev and like the school in Kiev is known as like the best like the best people come from there almost like I spent yeah. I spent a little bit of time while I was doing parkour research visiting the the, the conservatory mm. oh, yeah cool. The, terrifying. Like, yeah, it, <laughs> Those it, guys it, are terrifying. Yeah, it's it's there are they are absolute mutants to a degree, which is like I mean we're talking we're talking the best training with the best talent. Like it's like you just have a, a cooking pot there of things that are unachievable for ninety nine point nine percent of people. Uh, but kind of the attitude, which at least how I understand from the people that have been there, it's very much about the skill development, and it is a bit like. Pfft, like those people over in like Europe, like fucking French circus, just jerking off. Like they don't know they they, they can't do the things. Like yeah. there's a little bit of that attitude from my understanding, and I'm speaking totally second second hand account here. But still, like there is this um, kind of divide there of um, because yes, they are a lot better. Like if we're talking just the pure physical skills, I cannot stand on my hands for 35 minutes. While well, they can so. Yeah. And then um, it's basically to to quote my one of my first teachers in circus. He basically said, "Thank God the Russians don't have it all, or else <laughs> we'd be out of work." He said. <laughs> so it's it's uh, it's certainly like kind of um, it depends definitely on who you ask. But I think this is what's so important to to mention too, as you say that like these are these are very much constructs and that you informed by that knowledge, you can maybe at least start making some choices about how you, how you do your practice. And like, you look at your video and you go, Oh no, my, my, my knee had a micro bend. This is, this is like, this is how <laughs> hand balancers speak. Oh yeah. My, my knee is super bent. Uh, it, it equals bad. Like, okay. Oh, you did a press to handstand. Yeah. You know, like you, you bent your arms a bit. Like it's out. It's not, it's, it's, it's not proper. So you better retrain this. So, and if that has, it has some like functional components in terms of learning the the vocabulary but at the same time it's like hey you did the press the hands on like enjoy like this this dimension is kind of very often suppressed under like the building of the the grand skill and be, being being part of the real people that can do the real stuff <laughs> yeah 
Yeah, it's kind of one of those things. I'm I'm looking forward to, and, and I'm also a little bit worried. I, I want to prompt you. I'm, I know I'm not supposed to be doing the interview. No, no, do the interview. Oh, yeah. It's, it's great. But uh, I, I'm not sure. Did I, I? I'm worried that when I answered your question, I wasn't answering it. Uh, <laughs> no. So I don't know. Did you resonate with that? And did that fit? Yeah, I reson. Yeah, it made sense. It's kind of. I'm just throwing stuff out there the way I think about things and getting someone to tell me yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. what they think on it. So. Don't worry too much, but uh, it is kind of something Mikhail touched on, what I think you're going to have a lot to say on, is for a lot of the going Eastern circus, a lot of it is, I have a good quote by Lenin actually right here that will give you an idea. Circus itself and a lot of these kind of state institutions like ballet in Russia and classical dance in Chinese, Chinese classical dance and other stuff, they're part of the state institution of glorifying the state as well as providing entertainment to the masses. That's right. And there's a yeah. quote from Lenin. Uh, I'm not going to read it in Russian because my Russian is terrible. Uh, but the translation is, while people are, are illiterate, for us, the most important of all the arts are cinema and circus. And it kind of goes mm-hmm. like, oh, we have this kind of state proudness that would be, I don't know, I suppose these things would be more communist or collectivist in terms of like the individual, mm. the state supersedes the individual. So the individual taking part in groups and then also pushing their physical because like a lot of, maybe not so much in Russia, they're a bit better, but in China, a lot of it is like, it is a bit of a meat grinder. Like your body is there to serve the state to oh, achieve yeah. the highest technical perfection it can. And it achieves it, but then it's a meat grinder because you might be done by 24, 25 and not able to perform and in a lot of pain, but you have glorified the state institution by achieving the peak of your physical ability within the context of these groups as well. Mm. Oh man. Oh, I'm so excited that I get a chance to talk about this in a way that has expanded because I got to write about it a bit, but um, not as much as I would have wanted to. Uh-huh. Um, one of the big questions, and this is entirely connected, one of the big questions that I had to research was when I was doing parkour, um, central way that people were sharing knowledge was through videos, YouTube, sort of that skateboarding kind of community. Yeah. And one of the things that we saw was monstrous shit coming out of Russia, just ridiculously monstrous, like not monstrous in all kinds of scary ways, as in huge jumps. And when I say huge jumps, I mean, those boys were ruining their knees when they were landing those jumps. Uh, There's no way that the body can hold that up. Um, And simultaneously, monstrous amounts of physical coordination, both on rails and across trees and all of these environments. And so it was actually a research question when I got to go to travel to Ukraine and Russia. I'm like, well, what is it that produces these monsters? And here is the reality of it. Um, There is a system, and, and you guys probably know this, so let me know if I'm talking things that you all already understand, but there's a thing called the triangular in, um, insert system. I'm badly translating Russian yeah. words. Um, the idea that one of the things that you get to do is have a wide funnel at the base um, yeah. with a narrow end at the top and you suck in everybody who you can scientifically, and I mean, that's the way that they used to do it. Yeah. If they did a proper form chin up at the age of five or six, then we enroll them in wrestling or we enroll them in whatever else. And that's the way the state worked. Um, And on one hand, what an incredible system for producing elite athletes. Most of those people in the Kiev Institute, uh, the result of that, they've reached the top because they got there before they broke. 
Yeah. And one of the things that you see is people traveling through and then they break at various points along the way and they get cast out. Yeah. They get dropped out of the process. And one of the things that parkour got was this incredible amount of very dedicatedly, fixedly, like trained, raised gymnast style talent, except they somehow weren't good enough. Yeah. So what they did is they went into this movement practice where they could take whatever it was that was their discipline, but also combine it with this idea of performance, this idea of innovation. And so all of these Russian people came out of that system. I mean, I can name names, but they probably sue me for it, um, <laughs> where they, they dropped out of it because of an injury. But then they could step into parkour because they had all of this incredible physical capacity and movement that they could just utilize. And then the second that their injury, it became part of their technique that they could do these incredible movements without relying on this one thing that they couldn't do. And, and it was just so beautiful. So you sort of got to see this flourishing of artistic expression and innovation in movement because yeah. they no longer were good enough, but had the background yeah. of that self-sacrificing conception. And I think that that's really, really cool stuff. Uh, yeah, interesting. Yeah, that's, that's super fascinating, actually. Um, there's also one thing I'd like you to elaborate on i mean it's a little bit back to what we were talking about before and i mean this comes from the uh, embodiment lecture that we had um and that is like the um the way that the, the kind of the distinction there between uh, how to say like sports versus play in a sense because what i find very fascinating that you were sp speaking about in that lecture and uh, the the way that kind of parkour went went basically or like how gymnastics started very similar to parkour and then like how rule systems came in and like i think think this is a very fascinating discussion because i've seen that happen in in breakdancing and i've like i've even seen people like like it's not a lot of it but in in like kind of hand balancing uh, circles i have seen people trying to kind of push some sort of competition and you do have like these various circus festivals and stuff where people present an act and they get an award and so on, which it's it kind of is in some sort of blurry dimension between a comp like a kind of a sports event competition yeah. and some sort of arts thing. Like it's it's kind of blurry there, but I have seen places where it's much more just about like there's a bunch of kids, they present a routine each. It's all pretty similar because they're all just total mutant beasts on their hands, and then there is some sort of prizing and the more you go towards comparing quite because if you have a circus festival such as like Cirque du Demain, which is like one of the larger ones in the world, you will you will rarely have two people doing hand balancing. It will be all the different acts and then you see it a little bit more from an artistic perspective. But the more you compare people who do the same, the more you need to have a criteria system. And yeah, I'd like to just hear a little bit about like that kind of like uh, how that was in parkour from your, your experience. Um, well, before we get to the parkour bit of it, it's important to say uh, that play, and when I say play, I mean literally imaginative work, uh, pretending, working with toys. When kids are playing with toys, they're most of the time also doing a thing where they're, and this is great because it's neurological studies, um, what they're doing is they're projecting their sense of the body. There's this conception of exploring who you are. Um, and play is one of those things that is cross-cultural 100%. There is no culture that doesn't play. It's part of our developmental childhood. Um, and when I say childhood, I hesitate because 
it's not just part of our childhood. We're supposed to play throughout our life. It's a problem-solving thing that we do. It's, it's, a, it's a human trait to play. Uh, it, it's part of good mental health. When we're in really good moods, we play with our partners and our friends and our children like it is simply the way that we are presented. And physical play is, is part of that, depending on your ability. People get spontaneous and they do cartwheels and then fall down when they haven't done them in very, very many years. You know, all that kind of good example stuff. Um, sport, sport is a regulatory function. Sport is specifically the kind of sport that we think about comes from a very, very easily identifiable. And there's a guy called um, Gutman who wrote a lot about this. Um, it comes from a really particularly identifiable point in history. And that's the point of industrialization. We obsessed with measurement when it came to human movement about the same time that we got obsessed with measurement when it came to how many acres of forest we needed to be able to chop down to build a ship. This is all matters of nation states. Like, how do we how do we build a military? How do we build a society? How do we build? And sport is the answer to that. And, and when it resonates, it, it resonates in those contexts throughout history. And it's connected to this idea of building something that isn't just play. It's almost oppositional to play. Uh, and and the thing that I said at the lecture that I deeply believe, it's interesting to see, the more regimented we feel about our conception of play, the more we are into sport, the more we punish play. And so this might apply to handstands and competition. Um, that's the moment that we start to really measure every inch of a particular balance or no micro bends or micro movements. And I have no idea what I'm talking yeah, about. So. No. You make um, sense. It's kind of like in, say, in gymnastics to have handstands in there, obviously. It's not a, the main course. But there is a grading system for a handstand that like, oh, if someone bends a knee or bends an elbow in a handstand, it's quarter mark deduction from the form judge. And these kind yeah. of things, that goes into your aggregate score. So that kind of thing comes in. And just touching on this, actually, I'd like to get your thoughts on, uh, I've been sort of following a bit in the background of the the consumption of uh, parkour by FIG recently or in the last few years where they're mm. like, oh, they want to codify parkour into a discipline as part of the Federation International Gymnastico or gymnastics, something like that anyway, to mm. basically make it, you know, take it from the streets, from it's, it's this kind of idea that uh, going back to this idea of state apparatus, where it's like it consumes something people are doing and then mm. says, you can only do it in this context or this is the right way to do it. Mm. Absolutely. So, so this is this is the moment. And so, I guess I'll answer that in two ways. One is to say, everybody that I know in parkour, either people are excited because they're part of developing the movement courses, yeah, or people are really terrified because what we're dealing with is a scaling system, and now we have to decide what is appropriate for a scaling system. And one might be a race, which is a pretty straightforward thing to do, but then you have a particular physiotype that's going to be really good at those really powerful springy movements. And any kind of conversation about what is effective in one place or another is not going to win because what we're going to see is big jumps across really complicated terrain because it looks beautiful on TV. And that's what <laughs> that's what FIG wants to present. Yeah. Like they want to present a particular type of movement that defines efficiency. And it's really quite funny because I'm part of a group that does believe in the history, like remembering the idea of parkour. Having finished my, my PhD, I'm, I'm very much on the idea of remembering the founders. 
but this is scary because it's it's regulation in a really really powerful way yeah so you've got elements of the community that are excited because they get to build the courses uh, and they get to run through them and there's this sense of ownership um, and then you have elements of the community that are terrified because the last thing they want to see is I would never be able to participate. I was, when I started, 110 kilos. And that's not because I was fat. It's because I'm a large Russian framed dude. Uh, and there's just going to be styles of movement that are not going to work for me. Yeah. But lots of stuff that I can do with my upper body that gives me certain advantages. And the course isn't going to be built for me. It's going to be built for somebody who's midway through. It's not going to be built for... We get that basic thing that entered into gymnastics where physiotypes define your chances of success and you might not even have a chance to participate unless you adhere to you know you guys know the definition of floor gymnasts they have to be under a certain type they have to have yeah. a certain skeletal structure they have to have all of these things and people will just turn you down they won't the best coaches will turn you down because they don't yeah. want to waste their time with people who can't do it yeah so I mean, we see that sort of retrospectively being fed back into parkour it's not there yet but the imposition of the fear process seems to be an indicator on that sorry guys i'm i'm gonna have to take a second in the middle of this podcast because i have to let my family and this happens every single time this time yeah no problem we'll add it on mute for just okay. a second i'll be back yep. yeah, awesome we can just yeah i just guess we either cut this part out or yeah no, i'll edit it out don't worry yeah, this is cool. This is really, really interesting. Fucking nice to get, yeah. to get a different perspective on it. Um, uh, I was thinking of bringing up. Uh, uh, yeah, so I mean, <clears throat> just like um, going into kind of the, yeah, like the kind of cognitive or like society building effect or like how to say social group building effects of. Yeah doing stuff like this um um but yeah what was what were you just speaking about right now alex before you had to do the thing sorry about that just you got no worries. um yeah uh so that the idea of of transformative figurative effective sports and sportification and there's a whole word for it sportification of a practice ah. this idea of taking something that has artistic merit um robert reinhardt for everybody who's a giant nerd, um, wrote a series of beautiful essays about the X Games back in the 1990s. Yeah. And he spoke about the sportification of skateboarding, the sportification of windsurfing, and the sportification of um, rollerblading. Yeah. And it was, it was a mess because it was a whole bunch of people trying, Olympic style, trying to get people who did a popular culture thing who all came out of it organically to behave in a certain way. Yeah, I think it's um, kind of... Interesting because I was heavily involved in inline skating back in the X game days. I still mm. kind of skate. And one of the things that's kind of interesting was it was rollerblading was part of X games. And then it got the boot at a certain point mm. because it was it actually came down to it was considered more impressive because people could go higher on ramps. And that was beginning to take away from skateboarding, which was the main thing. So they dropped it as sponsor that? push. Yeah. But then rollerblading has kept up. It's always been this underground thing. What still has this, it's almost original parkour kind of expression and interfacing with the environment still kept going. And that kind of codification, and it's kind of when I, I took a long break from skating, but then I got back into it a, uh, a while ago anyway. But then coming back and seeing how it had become like 
creativity was pushed to the forefront. People who were doing the most creative stuff and then finding new things were kind of the people who are now top of the game versus the people who are just like, obviously there was monster beasts, but like the big roof gaps and other stuff. People were doing them still, but they weren't, if you weren't doing gaps, there was other people who were doing more creative stuff who like had the sponsorships and the skate sponsorships and stuff because they're kind of who people wanted to see. Whereas before it would have been like, oh, are you the, there's some Japanese brothers who were doing like doubles and triples on ramps and stuff like this who were kind of beginning to get up and they kind of faded. They're still really good and they're still involved, but they're not at the forefront of like yeah. who's really good because of this kind yeah. of stepping away from competition. Yeah. I think th- I think there's also this thing of, I mean, uh, I do, I, I understand the kind of, um, how to say the I I don't know if natural is the right way to word, but the tendency of of I mean within any given sort of cultural system, like you start creating certain signs and signifiers for value, and then those kind of start getting measured in in relation to each other, and then like you are already starting to create a competition. Oh, I could do a handstand for one minute. Uh, well, I could do it for one minute and one second. The winner is mm. obvious. Like. It's, yeah, or like I could jump one meter and a half and you could jump 160 well you won and so on but uh, I think there's also something that like which has been been quite of a like a big deal for for us teaching what we do is that like trying to um to keep it accessible in a certain way because like I mean I've taught people who came to me and go like yeah I want I want to get into circus school like I'm working with a girl now like when she contacted me she was like yeah I want to get into circus school. And I was like, okay, I will need to, I, I'm giving her a bunch of tasks that I wouldn't be giving most people who just come to me and say, yeah, you know, I want to really want to press the handstand and then do a one arm one day. Like mm-hmm. the profiling of the person is different, but uh, I think like having that kind of like, or making a discipline accessible by not, by like, it's fine that people push the heaviest skills. I, I love to watch like, yeah, like you say, like, some of these crazy Russian videos of like people jumping like the maddest gaps. It's it's impressive. And I like these people, they're driven to do this and like thumbs up, just don't kill yourself. But um mm. but I think that like remembering that there is a lot in this for people who are not necessarily even wanting to go elite. And I mm. think that was like a large uh, uh, influencing thing for us when we started Handstand Factory was just like okay we 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 need to assume like you said there are different bodies like there are different in size and shape and like we we were also looking into a lot of kind of just basic anatomy things and suddenly you realize oh hey like bones don't look the same in people like even even across the body on each side of the body your your bone structure might look slightly different muscle insertions and all of this will inevitably at some point or other start playing in right at what you'll be able to do but still being able to like create some kind of like generalized either technique or or maybe more than technique creating a generalized approach that allows people to try and because i think that ultimately uh, below all of this kind of elite stuff there's a bunch of people that might just want to have some fun with it and I mean, maybe some of them will also become really good, but that is irrelevant. Like having some sort of like stepping stones in which which is not based on the fact that, oh, well, well, like, I, I mean, I, I love one of my favorite examples is ring gymnastics because let us say you're 190 and you're 85 kilos. Well, forget about it. 
like yeah. you yes. will break and like there 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 yeah. isn't there isn't an amount of steroids that you can take that will help you to get as good as the guy who is 160 and, and 56 kilos like it's it's not <laughs> going to happen so yeah. uh, like i i really think it's important to kind of in these communities have kind of an accessibility dimension in in, in that sense like it's interesting i've seen this also in breaking now with like uh, and particularly again russia and china like there are coming some mega beasts and breaking of breakers out of there now. But the interesting thing is loads of them are kids, like mm. they're children. And like they like they're, and I mean, it's also natural people that were breaking back in the early 2000s. They now are kids and they start teaching them. And of course they become super good, but it's interesting, like how it used to kind of be like a teenagers getting into this or like late teens and so on. And now you have like six year olds throwing one arm air flares and you're like, Whoa, okay. <laughs> Yeah. And suddenly this is also going to shift the entire perspective. Like, are you, is I, it a, even a point starting unless you're one of those and all that comes in. That's it. That's it. That's really important. And, and sorry, Emmett, did you want to check something in before I go on a rant? Uh, no, I've got something to bring up after this, actually. <laughs> um, well, well, to me, one of the things that I've, and I've been watching, so I started with parkour and then I started looking at all of the sort of disciplines that I thought were related materially and historically and culturally related. So, uh, I think that there's, we need to understand that there's different places where people come in from. Um, and when I say that, like, if I had to come up with a, like a four-step continuum off the top of my head, uh, it'd be play, which is where we all start. Um, art, which is one step removed for play, but is appreciated. It's performed enough for people to see it. Yeah. Um, it's usually quite refined. Folklore which is when you have art and play, but also elements of artistry presented within a narrative. So this is now a performance that tells a story in a really powerful way. And then sport at the end of it. And I think that when you have art in sport, it's an accident. And when you have sport in art, it's an accident. And they're beautiful things to witness. But as they get closer to each other, you see the overlap become increasingly blurry. And one of the things that I've seen is incredible movement practitioners across disciplines from, from capoeira, Brazilian jiu-jitsu, karate, um, parkour, and then gymnastics and some breakers. They all come from different places within that. And you have people who just play. And I wonder, actually, you guys know these. I, I'm sure they must be a thing because I certainly know a lot of them. People who come out of the blue, who seem to have done no formal training, who have just played all of their lives, who are just absolute fucking beasts of the practice. Yep. <laughs> the yep. natural commitment that was dedicated and cultivated through the process of play. And then afterwards, you have art, people who are committed to the artistry. And there's an overlap between them that is very natural. And then the people who do folk, sort of again natural but getting tenuous and the people who play rarely end up doing the sport version because it, it almost contravenes their their internal idea of the value of the practice that they sportify even though they can be amazing at it they rarely yeah. want to sportify it um and then on the other hand you've got people who come in through the sports angle who are cultivated gymnastics like this is now what we're talking about is china and russia and ukraine cultivated gymnastics athletes who then kind of end up either performing that and doing beautiful art by accident or who end up falling out of it and then having to find ways to articulate it, which is what I found in my field work. Like that's when people remember that they actually like movement and they want to play with it. 
Um, and, you know, you've got Pasha Petikun and all these other incredible um, Russian movement people who are just that. They're just like, oh, the gymnastic world didn't want, it, didn't want me anymore. So now I play with movement. Um, and, and I think that most of our disciplines, I mean, any movement disciplines would, would, would probably just take a second and learn yeah. from that. Like if we were to respect each other as opposed to trying to tell each other what to do, boy, would we have a more unified field. But it's also not human nature because we feel so deeply threatened by people who come at our practice from a different perspective. And that's just a sad neurological reality. Tribalism yeah. is part of humanity. And when somebody does something as well as you do, but they came at it from a different perspective, we either have to become Buddhist monk levels of Zen about it and go, oh, isn't it amazing? I'm an arbitrary snowflake in the middle of a world and the thing <laughs> that I do isn't special. Or we have to turn around and say, yeah, that, but that's a legitimate, that's all bullshit. They couldn't possibly do it the way that I do. Uh, and, and those are all of the cultural fights that we have across every movement sphere all the bloody time. And, and here is the thing. I actually think it's good that we have them because when we stop having them, we fragment. And this yeah. happened within the parkour community across a series of places that I've been observing. The less we argue about which is the best possible way and the less passionate we get about it, um, the more likely we are to just not talk to each other. Oh, uh, and I think that that's sad. We lose, we lose a lot. <laughs> we lose a lot, even though it frustrates us and we want to kill the person who's making this stupid argument for the billionth time. <laughs> it's still a communication across the various cultural spheres. Yeah. Yeah, we still have the artists talking to the sports people. And I think that that's great. Yeah, you, you, you need to have the tension or else there's nothing i guess exactly it's i always use this and i sorry this is the last bit of the rant and and <laughs> if there's any iconic way that i can summarize it is it's to go back to like psychology which is something else that i really enjoy reading and practicing and 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 that is uh you know a couple like a relationship is yeah. fucked when they're not fighting anymore when they've given up on the conception of fighting with each other yeah. they've got a lot of chance if they're fighting with each other about what is their value because they're trying to understand and communicate the second that it's the second that it's a cold frosty uh impasse like a comfortable sort of battle lines cold war situation yeah. those guys are fucked like that's the point at which the the counselor will just say you guys might be happier apart than you are together because this isn't really a relationship anymore. And, and I think you can sort of blow that up into a, a, a macrocosm, which is, yeah. you know, the cultural practices of movement. Yeah, it's funny. We had a kind of post on our Instagram that kind of rustled a lot of jimmies because we have, we, have we have the way we teach and our teaching is kind of based on teaching for a very long time over stuff. And we, we aim to teach hand balance as an art form and develop the technical capacities and artistic capacities and that. But then you can do handstands different ways. And we said, well, we want you to have these kind of box ticking exercise on how to get the press and what we want to do. And then a lot of people chimed in and was like, oh, you don't need to do this to do the press. And like, but we stated as like, this is just the way we think you should go about it. It's not saying it's set in stone, but uh, that cued uh, a, lot of, uh, a lot of hatred towards us and a lot of uh, not nice comments. But it was kind of... It was surprising how, 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 how important it was to... I guess I guess it was also like because we are sort of an authority on the subject, and he was like, "Let's take him down." And yeah. I mean, there was nothing in the thing that says that, like, yeah, this is what you need to do, and if you if you don't, then you are forever banished to hell. Yeah. He just said that this is 
and this is a pretty decent way to go about it. And the interesting part is if you ask people who are very knowledgeable in the field about it, they more or less agree, not on the exact mm-hmm. account, but it was, yeah. it was pretty reasonable and still like there was like, here we here we here here we see the possibility for a yeah. fight. So, but but but, he, but 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 this is I think this is really important, and I really want to dive in there. Uh, hold on to that. The second that people aren't responding to a normalizing statement that you guys make, the sec is the second that you lose relevance. That means that nobody cares about what you have to say. <laughs> and here is the wonderful thing about it. It's 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 and 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 I'm pretty sure that Emmett would be able to follow me on this concept. Like beneath beneath hate there is anger, and beneath anger there is hurt, and beneath hurt there is love. It's a very very tired old Buddhist concept. Yeah. So for people to want to start a fight with you, they've been angered by you because you said something that hurt them. And that's the stage at which you introduced an idea that made them feel different from you because they really want to be like you. And then underneath that, there's love because why the hell are they even getting involved in this conversation to start with? And and, and that's really important, that, that understanding that these discussions happen because, I mean, it's really, it, the tribalistic element of humanity is always going to be there. And that means that the second that authority tells them, authority tells anyone, that this is how we did it and it's different from the way that they're doing it it's confronting and it's hurtful it's like having your parents tell you off yeah and the first thing that you want to do just like kids do when their parents tell them off is say fuck you mom and dad you don't know me i fucking know my own shit you don't know shit you know, i'm gonna just beat you up on instagram yeah and we did <laughs> or yeah, mikhail did that's fine. <laughs> kind of it leads actually into an intro or a question i want to ask or if you have any ideas on so we have this idea in academics of identitary self-positioning of how someone identifies themselves with a subculture and then also describes their role within that subculture and how they participate in it i'm just wondering basically like so for us and hans just before we started recording was talking about the federation and the federation yeah. who came up with that term just so i can credit the right person with it uh it was uh, jonathan fortin a guy from uh or i don't know how to say his last name Fortin, maybe he's uh, french yeah. so uh, he's a straps ar- artist he's at least the one that uh, that uh, introduced it to introduced it to me well as he was pacing violently around the room and explaining it with loads of passion uh, <laughs> yeah so yeah the essential uh, self-imposing of criteria and rules where there is no formal body yeah so that kind of thing of how one i suppose there's a bit of two two parters like how do subcultures define themselves with these kind of codified rules and like right and wrong it's like oh you are a good ballet dancer if you point your toes but you're a bad ballet dancer you flex your feet or they go floppy and then how people identify within those kind of rules to describe themselves so, so this is, I love it as a question because it, it lets me talk about the nuance of it. Um, and this is where anthropology gets really excited. Uh, me as an ethnographer coming into it. One of the things, thing, one of the first things that I found when I did, because my research was multi-sided. So I yeah. was in 17 countries uh, for parkour. And one of the first things that became really readily apparent is how much of the definition how much of the definition of what practice we engage in resonates with what we already understand. 
So I kind of love the fact that we've got a story about your French friends pacing around complaining about the Federation because in Europe, particularly France, uh, the idea of a Federation is ever present within sporting practices. And the idea of certain kinds of practice, particularly folk practices, but also like sporting practices are, are there. So sorry, I don't want to be mixed up. Um, another way to put it is anybody who's obsessed with sport and can only get used to the idea of sport in whatever practice that they do is going to be drawn to the artsy bit of practice. That's going to be the thing that catches their attention and it generates all this incredible um, community and all of this sort of functioning thing. But simultaneously, as they start to want to make sense of it, they'll drag it back towards the thing that they found least attractive about it. So this is the irony in parkour practice. People who were doing parkour in English-speaking countries loved it because it wasn't a sport. Yeah. But the second that they had to regulate it, the only way that they could think about the way that this practice fit was by thinking about sports. People who were doing parkour in France were involved with federations or unions, loose congregations of people who did practices but there's a lot of people in there who are frustrated about it because they're tired of federations and loose unions. <laughs> they want to see it sportified. And so the context really matters. In Russia and Ukraine, everybody is really excited about turning their art practice into sport because all of the thing that they've been trained for has had to do with this idea of representing citizenship, like as you said, Emmett, um, that was the way that they were brought up within their practice. But the second that they have to think about it as, as an independent thing, they can't help but drag it back to what they're used to. And so in a weird way, the cultural context within which we practice any form of movement is going to one, define the things that we love and hate about it. So there's a resistance to the stuff that we are used to and we're drawn to the stuff that's creative. But the second that it comes to regulation, we can't help but be limited by our experience and upbringing. So we then we rob the creativity out of this new activity by trying to redefine it in our own terms. And it's really funny because you see the way that, for example, Europe. So if we were to talk about the way that we've spread culture, we will talk about like Asia and Southeast Asia. We talk about Eastern Europe and we talk about Europe. And then we talk about the Anglosphere, largely speaking, yeah. Anglosphere. And I didn't spend any time in South America, so I can't represent those guys. I don't know what the hell they're getting up to. I'm sure they're wonderful and creative in their own way. But like everywhere that's English speaking loved the fact that you can find art and then immediately sportified it. <laughs> everywhere that was, that was non-English speaking loved the fact that you could find sport in something and then immediately like sort of broadly socialized it. Like it's, it's, we can't help but drift back towards those things. So, yeah, it's not, it depends on the cultural context. Everything is cooked in the cultural context. We process things in accordance to what we understand. And that's simultaneously, it's really weird because simultaneously it draws our attention to the things that you wouldn't think that we would like. But then the second that we have to articulate them, we bring them back down into our own conception and bring them down into our frustrations. I don't know whether or not that made sense, but it yeah, was it's, incredibly... It's kinda prevalent pattern in the stuff that i saw when i was yeah. looking at movement cultures uh, interesting interesting yeah it's kind of i can go from a bit of a parkour example as well to kind of elucidate my point so i have a very good friend of mine she was involved with parkour generation in london who you're probably familiar with and mm. she's friends with them was help organizing their women in parkour meetups and 
she she didn't resonate with this idea of pushing yourself facing your fear every time these kind of things mm-hmm. all she wanted to do was climb walls and do vaults and yeah. not really be like oh i have to do the super high she could do it she's pretty good at it but it she kind of got out of parkour because she just didn't want to be in these situations where it's like oh you have to go climb something really high and it's like well i'd prefer just to walk this rail so then her self-positioning she you know by the criteria that was expressed by the parkour community and the kind of broader ones like oh you have to be pushing yourself whereas like well my myself doesn't want to be pushed it just wants to you know climb walls is basically the easiest way to describe it and, and that's that's really funny because the uk is literally the home of sportified culture sport was born by accident of history within the uk in the modern comparison uh and and what you get to see is then you travel over to the ukraine and you've got these guys who climb buildings for fun because it's the way that they were brought up within a sportified socialist system and all they want to do is play on rails it's the exact opposite like the the moscow and the kiev parkour organizations will do these ridiculous conditioning sessions but then they just are like oh but but we get to play on rails and this is really the fun part about it (laughs) so yeah that's the kind of weird exchange that you see happening cross-culturally and i guess it's 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 one of those things where it's like you you want what you don't have and (laughs) and people people don't have what you have so the exchanges are happening in that way sorry yeah no No, no. i was just thinking of like um if we're thinking about the uh how to say the the ritual side of physical practice i mean i'm now maybe talking more kind of cognitively and kind of on on the personal level and interpersonal level and and because i mean obviously to to me or most people that do these kind of things like there are certain like things involved with the practice and sort of this to 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 me it's very much of a how can i call it like a self um reflexive type of uh uh practice at this point i mean i've done it for very many years and so on but like even even when you're quite new to it and you're excited and you want to get good and like all these things that really matter there's something kind of ritual about the the doing itself and the um, like which which also feeds into kind of the the community parts of it but uh i i'm i'm kind of interested in uh yeah both kind of the um, the kind of uh, micro social in terms of interpersonal relationships things with with that and kind of neurological because i'm sure that like there's many like loads of uh cultures that have various types of, of physical practices that where kind of it's an establishment of uh, something other than just uh, I learned the skill but kind of more mm-hmm. like I mean like I, I start immediately thinking of, of of I mean of course it's kind of extreme but like the Balinese cockfight and stuff like that where you like <laughs> we have this huge elaborate ritual to signify something specific and um, but like how how these um, uh, aspects kind of influence physical practices they then uh, across like yeah cultures and, and things like that. Mm. Um. Well, the big thing there is that again we have to go back and talk about the environment. So a good scientist wouldn't we wouldn't look at things in a petri dish. We want to look at it within its ecological context. We don't want to look at a cell isolated we want to look at a cell within a network a blood cell is the most functional when it's when it's within a within a 
with an environment that allows it to actually play out. And and I think that I want to touch on something Emmett said yeah. a little bit earlier, maybe off recording. Maybe this was part of our early chatter before we started the podcast. But um, you mentioned that you were into the esoteric movement. Yeah. And, and, and the esoteric movement is so much more potent and powerful philosophically and functionally now because the vast majority of our population doesn't engage in a practice of self-deprivation. It doesn't engage in a practice of hardship because we don't have to. Yeah. Because our ecology is created in a way that has actually really actively cut a lot of that down. Um, and, and I actually think that we're the worst people to talk about this and, and probably your <laughs> listeners because if, by virtue of listening to this podcast, you are likely to be the kind of person who has already found pleasure in the esoteric nature of, of good, hard physical practice. This idea of encountering limitations and playing around with how far you can go and how far you can't, and then reflecting on, on failure in a way that is, that is feeding your capacity to grow as opposed to assuming it to be negative. And, and, and I think that, I think this is why we are in an interesting space right now, because one of the major downsides of the sporting movement, and the sporting movement has had lots of upsides, particularly our capacity to create a nation state, the fact that we all got together on this thing. But one of the major downsides of it is that it's created this mythology about how only the elite deserve to play. Like most yeah. people stop playing sport after a while because they know that they're not going to succeed at it and and then life tells them that sport is for kids anyway um and when people continue it for a hobby it's almost rare like it's it has to be contained it has to be defined it happens within these limited fields and when that happens we lose its metaphoric impact like we lose the value of what it is like to have this really difficult physical encounter outside of the gym or outside of the football field yeah um, and, and I think that we have this really weird, messed up cultural experience where people forgot what it's like to move. And I mean, again, I want to press yeah. that Christianity has had a great deal to do with it because it's dirty anyway. Um, but also sport was the natural follow-up from that. So what do we get out of it? Like, what is the social value of practice? I think one of the things that we're going to see is a lot more people doing handstands. I think one of the things that we get to see is more people getting into practices like handstand practices, people getting into things because they do have what I just described as a value of play, a value of, uh, of art, a value of, of folk before going automatically to sport as the default starting place. Yeah. And I think that things like handstands, things like circus began there and work within that space. And then simultaneously, you guys know it better than anyone, have to argue with this entire new sort of medicalized, well, not new really, medicalized sport, sport field that tells, tells you all that, what are you doing anyway? You should just be doing this as part of your regular gymnastics. And it's not a practice of its own worthwhile art. Uh, and it's part of your whole round thing. And you probably haven't got it right. And the insecurities that come out of existing within a space that kind of forgot how to play. Yeah. forgot how to play with movement and kind of forgot how to have a um a deeply challenging personal experience um and, and it's only gotten worse since COVID, as far as i'm concerned because the more time we spend inside the more likely we we are to forget that that not being on the internet <laughs> that being on the internet isn't the only way that we can entertain or challenge ourselves 
I, I think what you just said now is perhaps the most or the best way of summing up, I think, why people do handstands. Like if you, if I, like I think I'm gonna start using that. I'm gonna, I'm gonna quote you on it. I'm gonna attribute that one to you. It's, it's <laughs> basically, it's basically to have to have a deeply challenging physical experience. Yeah. yeah. Because I mean that that's what it is. What what like because I, I think, like also what you say, like we are like if we start that kind of disconnect from the body in a sense that like you are you are a brain, or like or a consciousness traveling in this vessel to your job. And then the, the 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 consciousness does the job, and then the vessel takes you home, and then that's it. Um, mm. And then you have here suddenly this uh, this very challenging and very complicated process where yeah you need to embody and uh, like it's a funny thing that I've spoken about before on the podcast too that like uh, it's sort of as a joke but I mean when you learn to stand on your hands you are essentially doing what the child does. For the first couple of years of its life, of its life, trying to stand up, and here you're kind of like you're you're reforging a body map upside down and like building a proprioception that is new, and like there's so many elements into it, and you're getting stronger and you're doing all these things, but ultimately, like the fact that it is a very challenging physical, visceral um, practice, which is my, perhaps most importantly. I, like it's easy to try to do uh, and yeah. very hard to master makes it be oh. this thing of like it kind of help or like yeah i, I think it, it really like there's loads of things connecting in into that that exact thing so so i really want to i want to jump in here to get scientific about it um awesome to deprive ourselves of a practice that is constantly challenging ourselves in a way that esoteric philosophy describes quite often um is to to pretend like we don't have half of our endocrine system. The conception of anxiety, the conception of fear, the conception of excitement, which is really neurocognitively similar to anxiety. It's only a small variation on, on the endocrine hormones that we're producing there. Where we've created a society that's devalued those things. Um, and, and it doesn't make sense. It scientifically doesn't make sense. Yeah. What we need is some kind of process that allows us to experience the entirety of our endocrine processes, the broad range of emotions that define humanity. And we need challenge to do that. Yeah. Um, and, 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 and the second that we deprive ourselves of one element of that system, we start to numb down and shut down the others. And so all of these issues, and this is, this is just literature upon literature, issues in relation to the the rising of depression issues in relation to how much of our oppression is internalized and the 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 sort of polarization of political spheres within society so much of that has got to do with the fact that we we've removed threat and we think and this is absurd like this is neuroscientifically absurd yeah. we think that because we've removed threat we've removed our capacity for the threat response as if we're supposed to be happy all the time. Like yeah. the biggest, stupidest thing that we do as human beings is assume that if we build a society optimized for happiness, the only emotion we will ever feel is happiness. <laughs> and that is not how the body works. It's not the endocrinic system. It's not, it's not neurological function. It's not anything. Like we, we just are not meant to exist that way. In some weird ways, we, we've constructed what we think is paradise. And we have epidemics of depression. We have epidemics of anxiety within this environment. Hold on, hold on. We build. 
what you're saying basically is we're living in Matrix 1.0, where they had to reset the <laughs> whole right. thing because people right. couldn't that buy into exactly, it. Exactly. I, I love that because the second that you started saying it, I, I was on the same page. As <laughs> yeah. And uh, then we realized you yeah. humans like threats. Cool. I've got, yeah, I'd like to actually slightly change topic. <laughs> but uh, so we have this idea of movement cultures, but. I haven't heard it, but have we got an idea of spectator cultures where there's a kind of intrinsic need for humans to watch people doing things almost voyeuristic because it's kind of a part, it's like this kind of the movement practice exists, whatever it is, sports, whatever exists within the framework of a culture who can also observe it. Uh, the thing that I want to put in there, um, and I want to hear your opinion yeah. on it all, but one thing that is really well recorded on it is advertising has figured this out a really long time ago. Um, advertising has figured out that the best way to sell Doritos and Pepsi is to get people to sit down and watch the Olympics sponsored by Doritos and, Tep and Pepsi. And there's this beautiful sense of, um, I guess, a form of empathy that comes from watching people perform in a way that you never can. Um, which is wonderful for marketers because what you can do is you can find the elite and you can name them elite and you call them freaks and beasts as we did just a little bit earlier. Um, but then you can say, don't worry about it. You will never be there. So just come sit down, eat your Doritos and eat your <laughs> Pepsi and you can participate in the secondary way. So there's, there's all kinds of interesting cultural ways that people feel like they can buy into participation. Um, and that's more than well tested because it's the basis of every company spending hundreds of million dollars on its Olympics um, um, contribution campaign. Yeah. Um, but but yeah, I want to. I don't know that much about the folk folk side of it because most of yeah. the stuff that I do like, is participation. I mean, it's it's essentially kind of participation by proxy in a sense that yeah. like uh, you you are you are watching and then. I mean, it's funny, like just a few days ago, I was uh, hanging out with, I mean, I'm in Sweden and I was hanging out with some Swedes and they were watching a football game and when it's when Sweden won and just, just a classical, like seven guys in an apartment standing up screaming when there is a goal and like moaning when there is like, when the, the other team scores and so on. It's like the very classic thing that everyone can kind of directly relate to. Um, and um, yeah, I, I think that like the, um the the viewing of of these things is also like i mean it's it's part of of what what kind of drives us even on i think on a on a smaller scale because like there is this classical kind of uh, modern society notion that that tries to denounce the fact that um you want other people's attention like yeah you know like <laughs> I, I i train handstands and everything only for myself i don't care what others think you know but it's very important for me to post on the internet telling that, yeah, you know, I don't really care what others think. It's very important yeah. for me to tell <laughs> you that, which is, is that. There is nothing else you're, that you do. You're a, you're a pure artist, right? You just do it for the art. Yeah. And you want people to know that you do it for the art. Exactly. And I, I, I find this very uh, fascinating because, like, for all of us, like, we are social beings and it's, like regardless of how how we are discussing the topic as we did today like of course when when i do certain like when i practice my things i do them because i like them i like them because other people like them like there is a part of that like if if that wasn't an aspect at all then i wouldn't be doing what i'm doing but 
then there comes kind of that nuance there of like okay how to what degree am i in letting myself being influenced only by okay it needs to be proper so everyone can love me for it or like can it be can i also find joy in in the doing itself uh and there's actually i don't know if you've seen now i'm ranting a bit here but oh, i don't right. know if you've seen that but um there is an interview by with rodney mullen if you know him alex yeah yeah yeah, skateboarder, yeah. Fan of rodney mullen. yeah. You, you, skateboarder. yeah, yeah. You, you need to watch his interview uh on this youtube channel called impact theory usually they just like invite like success porn speakers basically who tell you like yeah you know this is how you become a millionaire but <laughs> his interview is fucking beautiful and like he like basically, uh, like everyone that listens to this podcast, go go listen to that one because it's fant- fucking fantastic. Particularly the last ten minutes, but he, <laughs> he speaks. He basically says that like there is it's he says that it's one of the hardest things for any pro is to be able to to love and do what you do for the sake of itself, like mm. to like to get closer and closer to that core. And uh, I think he's one of like my favorite examples of like. Of that because like the guy is like in his 50s and like he's still going out there skating and he's still like he says that like sometimes like like you just suck so bad and like you just like i can't just drive my car out to the par- parking lot because i take it so personal but he says that that's like that's really the nature of love and uh, <laughs> like the kind of uh like the commitment to to what you do so i think there's definitely like kind of a dialectic between like okay my inner need of wanting to do this beautiful thing because i love it but there's no point pretending that you aren't influenced by a social sphere around you and i think this really goes into kind of that voyeur culture or like the kind of participation by proxy thing now i was ranting a lot about seven different things at the same time but i hope oh, that's good sort of sense yeah i i I think that Rodney, I, I think that Rodney Mullen is in skateboarding the best example of a person who came out of the play sphere. And then the second that people saw him, they went, that's art. And yeah. then and then weirdly, Rodney Mullen is also an example of of skateboarding had having to work out because it was trying to be a sport. Rodney Mullen was so good with his art and his play that skateboarding went we need to come up with a way to sportify Rodney Mullen. So he's in this wonderful, unique category because yeah, like the hours on flat ground that that dude spends. Mm. Um, for anybody who doesn't know, Rodney Mullen is, a, is an amazing skateboarder who is just, he likes to go to a car park and just yeah. kick flip things around. It's just really amazing. And then, and, and does inhuman things. Yeah. So, yeah. But that's because of the hours, like because he wants to play. And that's come across from his interviews from back in the 70s that mm. when he's talked about it, like it's, it's crazy shit to see. And that's what yeah. I say, this is where we have to respect the people who come from those environments. Mm. If they don't look like sport, then maybe sport needs to pay attention to them a little bit more because yeah. sport is a very rigid construction and very, very biased because it often comes from very specific ideas of performance. So if if you want a really good measuring system, you want to get the artists and the people who just play. I don't know. Sorry, I, I, no, I no. cut you out because I just ranted. No, no, awesome. <laughs> rant away. Like, you think you need to listen to more of our cast and see what we do? Yeah, we we, we rant a lot. <laughs> but like, I I just want to shoot in in one thing before I met, and that is yeah. that like, it's funny when we speak about sports now. I re I realize that, uh, 
like that aspect of hand balancing, like the federation, the the self-imposed rule set that you kind of adhere to in your head, that is sports. Yeah. That is that is an internalized system, like system of criteria that that even though there isn't a formal body saying it, it is this in your head judgment. And like I, that, that time, uh, Jonathan uh, explained what he meant with the with the federation to me. He said that like the federation like is you judging yourself even when you're alone. He said, mm. it's like, oh yeah, like this was a good one. This was a bad one. And what he loved to do, like he was on like this aerial strap thing and he was showing me a couple of moves and he says like, yeah, look at this one. And he does like a move, which is a classical one. Like, yeah, th this, you know, this is, this is, this is something that everyone knows. Like it's this, uh, for you that know what it is, it's, it was a meat hook to a reverse meat hook switch. It's a cool looking trick. And then he goes down again and he starts spinning and he does like, but what about this one? And he does the move, but he doesn't complete it. He kind of almost goes there and goes down and almost goes there and goes down. And then he does a bunch of like things that are not so clear, but they're just not clear because I, I don't have a preconceived conception of what they're supposed to be. And he's like, but why aren't these valuable? Why aren't these things cool? And the funny thing with him is that like he has an infinite amount of vocabulary because he never he never completes the move or he, he does sometimes. He, he can do all of the stuff, but he he chooses to vary within like he treats that as a as a kind of a, a spectrum of of gray zones of interesting stuff rather than either you don't do anything or you do the move um mm. and i think this is this is really really interesting in terms of like remembering for all of us when we do these kind of things that like well our criteria that we choose to ju judge ourselves and ours upon are worth questioning um particularly in relation to what do I want to do? Because if that's what you want to do, it's fine. But hey, what, what if, what if I, I actually don't feel like this thing, but you know, like this is what everyone says is proper. And should I sad face because I am not interested or able to do it? Yeah, I, I, I have to say that I fall into the conception of within my movement practice and I've had my practice for a while, still fall into conceptions of performing. Um, and, and then you meet somebody. So we've got a, we've got a great parkour guy here called John Baker, uh, who I remember from maybe like seven or eight years ago, first time he really got to play in a foam pit, um, showed up and just decided to figure out different ways to fall, uh, and was able to figure out a series of what are pretty technical flip movements through that process. And it's interesting because it was, it was the fact that he was playing and he didn't care that made it into art but also made it great sport because by the end of his session, he was doing movements that are technically scalable. So that relationship, that progression uh, is wonderful. And I think it takes a particular, see, I don't, I don't think it's a personality because I'm not a, anybody who does any serious neuroscience Yeah, doesn't believe in the idea that we are introverts or extroverts. Yeah, There's a flow that happens throughout our life. Um, so I think that, that that's a wonderful mindset to be able to be in, but comes more naturally to some people than others, but yeah. Yeah. I'm trying to think what you touched on there. A lot of things. Yeah. kind of, <laughs> yeah, we could almost say just based on this introvert extrovert federation stuff as well, the true hand balancers are those random people who send me questions. I'm sure you get the same ones. They have an Instagram account. And has like one picture, the mandatory one picture you have to post of something that they ate, and there's nothing else. But then they ask an incredibly technically advanced question on a handstand. Go, I'm having this problem. 
and blah 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 and it's like something to do with one arm or press or something but then there's no there's no evidence that they one arm or that they do <laughs> anything that they even have a practice that just or that they exist other than just you know an algorithmically generated question mm. so they're they're the true hand balancers free of the federation free of <laughs> other people's eyes but let 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 hey let's give sport people we need no, no, sport no. people yeah. Because if we, didn't, if we didn't have sport people, we wouldn't have community. I mean, yeah. sports people represent all of those narratives and values that unify. Yeah, I, I think uh, I, it, it's 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 a really important point because, like, even though it sounds like we're kind of berating the the entire kind of criteria thing, that it's it's not really about that. I think it's just that is there and it'll always be there. So accept it, but allow yourself to not treat it as kind of a kind of put on a god given pedestal. It's it's just a thing. Some people people came up with um and like it's um now i completely lost my train of thought i had something no, no i'm getting it it's kind of i can think then, i can finish then, it then out the window. <laughs> well it's, it's one of those weird things that anthropologists ends up hitting on um and anthropologists when we do our field work one of the things that we quickly realize is, is stereotypes that are horrible and, and nonsense and so much of them are projected internally but then one of the things that happens is after a while you hang out and you do all these interviews and you do all this work and, and, and so many anthropologists that we send this cheeky email to each other, or we say this, the thing about generalizations is that they're generally true, which means <laughs> that, which means that if you have an amazing movement practice routine and, and it requires a certain amount of sportified discipline and you are the freest free living flip around never want to follow the rules handstander you've ever imagined you're still going to benefit from that routine <laughs> uh, and it's a matter of and it's a matter of approach like that's one of the things that's kind of uncomfortable about this we like to think that we can all get there in our own different ways but look i've also seen a lot of community revolutions within movement practices that have actually had to do with people shutting the fuck up and actually just training <laughs> um, and there's all kinds of weird shit that happens with politics where people get really involved in the idea of having to represent a certain ideal of training mm. uh, and then they actually cut themselves off at the knees and you, they, you don't see them progress because they're artistically against this thing that they probably need to do more than any other thing to progress mm. their physical capacity and um, yeah that's, that, that's all kinds of fascinating tangled up cultural stuff that happens then yeah, that's kind of an like interesting the, one in circus actually, where yeah, we get a a lot of argument against strength versus technique. That if your technique is good, you don't need strength. Now, obviously, technique technique is there to make things efficient, but people get obsessed with like perfecting the technique when actually what mm -hmm. they just need is more brute force, and then the technique the technique will come perfect based on. I always think of like when I'm talking about coaching and talking to my students, I'm always talking about technical perfect form is uh, like it's something that emerges based on convergence of strength coordination flexibility active flexibility all these things kind of go into it as well as aesthetic sense which is part of coordination and that's what gives you perfect form whereas if you chase perfect form without having enough of these bubbles filled up you can't have perfect form emerge but but isn't it also interesting like i mean it, it like it's it's a perfect reflection of what you just talked about in the very beginning of uh, of the pure versus the impure. I mean, technique is pure, beautiful, and more associated with the mind. And brute force is some sort of like mundane, profane, disgusting stuff that we don't want here. Like it's it's literally that. Because and, like, unless you're a machine, unless you're a machine. 
because yeah. machines are beautiful and pure in their own way mm. and machines function in all kinds of interesting ways and, and i really think that this is sort of the we're talking about what people idealize there's an internal mm. politic yeah do i idealize the the machinated version of the body in mm. which case i'm going to get all this stuff right or do i do i idealize the the cultural story the art mm. in which case the body is get gets in the way and I mean, it's absurd. I mean, this is this is a weirdly, this is, I'm so glad that we're here again. It's not, this isn't the way that most cultures think about movement. Mm. This division is a very culturally specific one based on conceptions of souls and whether or not we believe that souls are good and souls are bad. Um, most cultures don't have this dumb idea of a soul. The unchanging essence is actually really rare cross-culturally it's something that we've been really effective at imposing um so so i have to i have to i want to really highlight it's a bit of a pathology that we've imposed upon the world to imagine this 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 binary um mm. the, the 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 soul is the body i mean if, if you were to be really scientific about it neurological conception and i think that um i think you said it before you know the brain is a bit of meat that, that we can cultivate in a whole series of interesting ways it's a muscle in a whole bunch of functional ways. Uh, if I'm misquoting, you do correct. Me. No, no, you're doing it right. It's just kind of, <laughs> it's just kind of commenting on the kind of the conception of mental health, and it just comes down to like, oh, yeah, almost that you you have engaged in wrong think or wrong activities, played too much video games or studied too hard or something, and therefore your your mind, this non incorporate thing, has been broken, and it's basically your fault. Whereas yeah. At the end of the day, the brain is an endocrine organ. It's an organ of respiration. It's how we interface with the world. That's right. But it's yeah. just like a piece of flesh that can get broken in some ways or have the wrong something. And and, and it's really similar to the rest of the body. I mean, so much yeah. neurocognitive processes happen within the embodied unit. Um, and, and poor Mikkel has had to suffer me explaining that. So great. We've been going about 90 minutes. I'm going to wrap it up there to stop uh, yeah. everything getting too long. Yeah, it's a long one. This was super interesting. Uh, I'm sure, well, I'm sure all our listeners are super into it. And I'm sorry, we're not talking about toe points. But uh, no, I'm sure they will. Uh, if people are game, we'd definitely be game for having you back. Yeah. But uh, other than that, would you like to uh, you know, tell people about your courses or where they can find your stuff? We'll obviously have links in the show notes and everything. But uh Sure. Maybe your uh, stuff. Yeah. So I am currently for like a year and a half now only engaged in research whenever I want to be, which is nice. Um, but I have to make money, so I run anthropology courses. So yeah, come find me. Um, I'll give you an email and I'll give you a schedule for all that stuff. I'm affiliated with a whole bunch of non-university places. Yeah. But I want to make you a promise, uh, and I think Michael will testify. Um, the courses that I'm running. Uh, exactly the way that they would be at university. So I'm yeah. pissed off at unis at the moment. I think that our teaching processes are shitty. I think that we need to have access beyond expensive course loads and lots of stress. So um, if you guys want to take an anthropology subject, currently I've got three. Oh, awesome. You can come and take them. You know, I might even jump on one of them. Yeah, you should, certainly should. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I've, I've done the Anthropology 101, which is uh, kind of an introduction to anthropology, which... I thought was brilliantly structured and something that will like kind of introduce to anyone the the general kind of notions of both the history of anthropology and kind of the 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 various like the various um components of its uh, 
or with both its practice and its kind of uh, discipline. So I am uh, certainly recommending that to anyone listening. I'm now doing the embodiment course and I'm really looking forward to the one about, what is it, uh, popular culture that you're going to do. Yeah, popular culture. Yes, that's going to be amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. Like for me, this decentralized or de-academic, like in the grand structural academic form of education, that we can mm. we can now get to the point where it's like, oh, you could actually get a university level course. Obviously, like edX and stuff like this kind of spearheaded it, but at the same time, now it's like it's even leaving those structures. People are just like, you know, I know a lot about this thing. I'm really enthusiastic, <laughs> and I've know how to convey it, and now you can just come and do it with me as an interest and that's awesome so i'm really uh yeah. really keen about that and that's very one of the reasons i like to, to get you on so well, it, it, it also it also depends on where you come from i mean for me it's being migrant working class and then realizing towards the end of my career how middle class you have to be and how few people outside of that structure get access to uni so yeah just make it available yeah it's definitely one of those things that uh yeah we're in a very interesting phase like that's what I kind of like about now. It's like you can literally learn anything you want from anyone very easily online. But then a lot of people don't. There's kind of, sorry, I'm going to ramble slightly and then I'll wrap it up. There was this story I read, a short science fiction story about humanity had uh, obtained immortality. And you're just, you're never going to die. That was it. You're just here forever. And then society stratified into two types of people. The people who are like, oh my God, I have all this time now. I can learn everything. And they were just super industrious, working, studying. And then it stratified. The other side was like, oh, I have an infinite amount of time. I can do it later. Mm. <laughs> I think uh, we see that now. I see it uh, kind of, yeah. So anyway, I'm going to wrap it up there. This has been the Hansen cast. We will have links and everything for Alex's work and you'll be able to find them. I also checked out some of your art, which was pretty cool. So you can check out some of your art. And uh, other than that, we'll be back next week with some other handstand-related topic. But uh, thank you so much for coming on. Yes. And we had a great, great time. Thank you, guys. Yeah. Pleasure to meet you, Emmett. It's, yep. it's, it's going to be a good deal of fun. That went really quickly. Let me do the outro music. The Handstand Cast is brought to you by Handstand Factory and is produced by Motion Impulse. Thanks for tuning in. You can find a full transcript of each episode along with the show notes and any relevant references on handstandfactory.com slash podcast. Thanks to Isaac for editing and Jordan for transcriptions. Music by Daniel Horworth. If you want to support the show, you can buy us a coffee on buymeacoffee.com or consider starting one of our Handstand Factory online programs. Links are in the show notes.